Welcome to The Dive Podcast, presented by Willamette Week, where every Saturday we discuss the biggest news stories of the week with Portland's noisiest newsmakers, savviest culturistas, and some of the best journalists in the game. I'm your host, Brianna Wheeler, and I want to hear from you. So send your questions and comments to me, bwheeler at wweek.com. All right, y'all, enjoy the show. This week's issue of Willamette Week is The Give Guide, the paper's annual directory of local nonprofits organized for easy comprehension and maximum philanthropic opportunity at every income level. This issue also spotlights the next generation of nonprofit luminaries with their five yearly Skidmore Prizes. Each prize highlights the work of one of Oregon's most promising changemakers. And if this election season is giving you the heebie-jeebies like it's giving me the heebie-jeebies, then the profiles of these Skidmore Prize winners will almost certainly restore your hope for the future of Oregon. It's Saturday, October 29th, and this is episode 95 of The Dive. This week, I'm talking to Kirist Ashe, the co-founder and executive director of the Black Oregon Land Trust. The Land Trust, or BOLT, helps maintain Black-owned farmlands, build networks, and engage rural communities in order to cultivate a new generation of Black farmers. I am a person who has gardened while Black, aspires to rural living, and champions motherhood, so Kittist's work is very relevant to my interests. I'm also going to catch up with WW City Hall reporter and one of my favorite guests, Sophie Peel, in anticipation of the upcoming election to get the scuttlebutt on Mayor Wheeler's new solution to street camping. Spoiler, it's either relocate to the city's designated areas or go to jail. Well, okay, actually, it's way more complicated, but Sophie's going to break it all down for us. All that's coming up next, but first, here's what I learned from this week's edition of Willamette Week. On the WW website, Sophie Peel reported that a judge overturned the $77,000 fee against city council candidate Renee Gonzalez by the city's small donor elections program. This is big news. The program alleged that the $250 a month rental Gonzalez used as campaign HQ was listed online as costing nearly $7,000 a month to rent. That discount constituted a donation. But Judge Joe Allen ruled that $250 a month for a downtown office space was fair market rent, which I think means that downtown real estate is now popping off at like 10 cents a square foot. So who do we need to sue to make that true? I know I said that I just aspire to farm life, but with downtown at these prices, I'll just build an indoor greenhouse. Lucas Manfield reports that without transit cops, TriMet has pushed to increase unarmed security staff. In 2021, the short-staffed PPD pulled all of its transit officers from TriMet duty and put them all in the street. But for the last two years, TriMet has been on a hiring spree, doubling its security staff from 125 to 229. I was a TriMet commuter for several years, and I will attest, it is unnecessarily discomforting to get ticket-checked by someone with a loaded firearm and handcuffs at the ready. However, TriMet's newly launched safety response team is staffed by guards contracted from Portland Patrol, a company that made headlines for hiring a West Lynn lieutenant who left the force after his involvement in the wrongful arrest of a black man. And in this week's Potlander, I, a mother, recommend a handful of parent-friendly cannabis products that might help lighten your emotional load without 
sacrificing any of your refined parental functions. And I am true to this. Each of those products has earned a place in my own mommy stash box. Now let's drive home this news segment with my first guest, Sophie Peel. So Wheeler's plan, and I think a lot of it is still pretty fluid. I think we are learning more details, both as they come out and as the mayor's office is willing to tell them, but also as they're figuring them out in real time, because I think there's a lot of moving parts to this. But the the bare bones of the plan is there's going to be three massive, what they call, quote unquote, campuses that are, you know, have the capacity up to 500 people and their tents, basically. Um, The idea initially is to have 150 people in each of those three campsites and then build up capacity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, really the, the, the biggest, and this is a gaping, gaping hole there is, we don't have the funding for it, or at least we don't know where that funding is coming from. And, you know, the city has again and again over the past few years, they've gone to the county asking for money for more shelters. They've gone to the state, they've gone to Metro and they've just come up, you know, blank. And so once, once again, their whole, their whole premise is uh, of these, you know, massive encampments is, is relying on the hope that we get funding from somewhere. October 12th, October 13th, Mayor Wheeler and Commissioner Ryan send a letter to Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kafori, and they're asking her to sign on to what exactly? Yeah, so they, um, they sent basically a huge laundry list of, of obligations that they, that they think the, the county should take on. So that included, you know, funding, building, and operating these huge, massive campsites, sanctioned campsites that the mayor plans on building. Um, also, you know, operate all the funded shelter beds, which is a total of 2,400 in the county. Manage all the six safe rest villages, of which only two currently are open. A third one is is coming online soon. Provide services at all these shelters, um, including security and build out stabilization centers. You know, what What I'm not really, I, I guess the underlying tension in, in that letter, which was never explicitly said, but has sort of been hanging over this kind of always contentious, you know, county and city relationship is the future of the Joint Office of Homeless Services. So that's the office that, you know, is split between the county and the city. So they both pool hundreds of millions of dollars in that office to combat homelessness. And so it's kind of the one place where the county and city, you know, pool their dollars and it's supposed to be a joint office. However, that, that joint office is pretty much under the sole control of Deborah Kafori, who's the, who's the chair. And so really, if, if you, you know, in concept, it's supposed to be a joint office, but the county has pretty much unilateral control over how they spend those dollars. Granted, mm-hmm. they put more dollars into it than the city does. What kind of, you know, was, was the unspoken groundwork of this letter is that the city and the county for, you know, over a year now have been ne- renegotiating the joint office contract. And they had to extend it this past summer for an entire year because they had to iron some things out. They hadn't come to an agreement yet. So what was under this letter is basically the city saying, hey, if you don't do these things that we expect you to do, we can pull our funding out of the joint office and just leave. So that was sort of, you know, again, it was never stated anywhere, but that, you know, was sort of the understood tension by, behind this. Where does, um, where does Deborah Kafuri stand on that plan? She hasn't explicitly said, but, but what I will say is, is she gave a response that I had reported on, I think it was, or I think it was maybe Monday or Tuesday. And again, she didn't officially take a stance, but basically she reiterated in however many words, the, uh, the standing accomplishments of the joint office, how they're doing so much, 
and, um, you know, asked the mayor's office to correct some rhetoric that they've been saying, which is, she said, was kind of a, you know, non-factual representation of the facts of what the joint office is or isn't doing. And so, again, it wasn't a clear response, but, you know, it, it was a it was a soft, passive aggressive rejection letter, basically. Mm-hmm. So upcoming election, Deborah Kafori is going out. What, how does how will the upcoming in how many ways will the upcoming election affect this plan? So I think the most important thing. So what we know as it stands right now is that, you know, all five of these resolutions, which sort of encompass this, this whole plan, the the massive sanctioned campsites, the, you know, intent to build 20,000 or start construction on 20,000 affordable housing units, you know, a way to divert low level offenses when they implement this camping ban to put people through treatment rather than having something on their criminal record. Mm. All these plans, which are laid out in the mayor's five resolutions, they'll come to council in a couple weeks, uh, maybe next month. So city council, that race isn't really going to matter between Renee and Hardesty. And it wouldn't matter even if Renee came into office two weeks from now because Wheeler has three secured votes on council for pretty much all five of these resolutions. Mm-hmm. Mingus Maps, Dan Ryan, and himself. So mm-hmm. even if Hardesty votes no, doesn't doesn't really matter. They're still going to have a 3-2 majority. Mm-hmm. The, the race that really will matter in this, and it's interesting that you brought this up because I hadn't really thought of it in this way of like which races matter in this. The chair's race for Multnomah County chair is hugely impactful, I think, on this. So what's interesting is that, you know, both both the candidates for chair yesterday actually testified in front of council about this plan and said, we support this. That was Sharon Meyer and that was Jessica Vega Peterson. Sharon Meyer, not surprising. She's Mm -hmm. always sort of. Uh, you know, she's always been a little bit poo-poo at the county's approach to homelessness and saying there's not enough urgency, we got to get more shelters. Jessica Vega-Peterson, however, has really towed the line for Deborah Kafori. And so they, on policy, are very aligned. And so mm-hmm. it was really surprising. But I guess in in another way, not surprising, because she has to win an election. Yeah. And all candidates scheme. Like, no, yeah. no one is above scheming, you know, or maybe not scheming might be too hard of a word, strategizing. It was a strategic move on her part. But what I will say is that if Myron wins, I think it is more likely that the city will move swiftly on this plan and might actually get county funding. Whereas JVP, I could see maybe that waffling a little bit once she, if she gets into office and that she might be like a little bit more protective of that county funding and sort of the housing first model. Sophie. Now let's welcome my next esteemed guest, Bolt co-founder and executive director, Kittist Esche. So the model of our trust is kind of a typical community trust model where the the trust holds the land so that it can't be developed, can't be, you know, foreclosed on. And then families who are stewarding, who are farming, we have a family who's coming in to work on livestock next door. Um, they, they can have the opportunity to own the home on the land. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this cool model that our longer vision, you know, five years, 10 years down the line, is that there will be pods like this all across the state. And that when folks are interested, you know, I really want to get into uh, understanding water conservation or forestry, or I'm going to start an herb farm, or I want to be part of livestock tending. Then um, we can say, here are all these opportunities across the state with folks who are already doing this work. Because part of the challenge now is 
when there are land opportunities that come come up, they're often very rural and very isolated. Mm. And especially for black folks and other folks of color in Oregon, right? It's not a super appealing opportunity a lot of the time or yeah. safe. How many, so I know that there's, oh gosh, tens of thousands of farmers in Oregon. How many of them are black? That is the million dollar question. <laughs> so according to census data, there are only 64 black farmers in the state of Oregon. What? But we believe in our community that that is a far undercount mm. because I could probably count maybe 30 to 45 just off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that many people. <laughs> <laughs> and so part of our work also is to start to bring those folks to the forefront. And there's a lot of reasons why they might not be accurately represented, partially because of the distrust and the, um, you know, the reality that many black farmers don't want a lot of publicity, mm. particularly by the USDA. They don't want to face, you know, unfortunately, there's still a lot of pushback, as we've seen even in recent years with um, the distribution of COVID relief for, for black farmers and the pushback around that. Um, people are really isolated. You know, I, I spoke to a farmer, a black farmer in Eastern Oregon, and he was like, I had no idea that there were other black farmers in the state. So there's a lot of um, isolation and a little bit of fear and mistrust. And also, I think, a lack of opportunity for us to really engage with each other. So we're both um, interested in increasing the number of Black farmers, but also increasing the visibility and connection and community across the state, because there are folks here. There have always been people here um, doing really amazing work. Mm -hmm. What does the outreach look like? Yeah, well, one of our projects right now is we are working in partnership with Oregon State and their small farms program to uh, do interviews and site visits and really go around the state and meet these farmers face to face and talk to them and build relationship, which is a slow process. Again, there's a lot of first of all, farmers are extremely busy, yeah. <laughs> but also a lot of distrust of like, I don't want my name publicized, you sure. know, I don't want to um, draw unwanted attention to myself. Mm -hmm. So really starting slow building relationships and our part of our vision is to create um, a virtual network of farmers that can share resources and equipment and support and funding opportunities amongst each other and also gather and yeah. You know, we're we're in the process of creating space here in Corbett on the land that we um, have the opportunity to, to steward and be responsible for um, to create gathering space for not just farmers, but land stewards, black folks interested in conservation, young people to gather, to eat together, to be on land, to enjoy nature and start to really, um, yeah, just build those relationships. I'm wondering what is like the median age of black farmers in Oregon? You know, that's a good question. 
I don't know the median age of a black farmer in Oregon, but I know that in general, the median age of farmers in Oregon is around 60. Mm. And you're at a really unique and important moment in history across the country and specifically here in the state of two thirds of Oregon's agricultural land are going to change hands in the next decade. Yeah. And even here in our community in Corbett, yeah, we're seeing, you know, farmers are getting older. They're not able to sustain their acreage and their children or their grandchildren maybe aren't really interested in farming. Sure. So obviously there's been a huge history of black land loss that continues um, across the country. Upwards of 30,000 acres every month are lost. When we look around, the question is, well, who's going to steward the land? Yeah. Right. Who is going? To, who has the skills and the desire and the relationship? And so, a lot of the folks that we work with are younger. Mm-hmm. Although we are really grateful to have an intergenerational community, so we have. It, it feels like there's a little bit of a gap in the in between. We've got folks who are a bit older, in their fifties and sixties, who are ready to pass on wisdom. And I think we're coming back around. And there's a lot of, you know. 18 to 30 year olds who are coming back into a desire to reclaim ancestral traditions, reclaim relationship with earth, grow skills around farming. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's a beautiful moment really to get, start to see and create those opportunities. Was there like a defining moment that you pivoted to this initiative? Was there some kind of like, event that that sparked this interest for you yeah it's a, it's a great question and i often get asked you know okay teaching policy birth work health farming nonprofit, those all yeah and i'm like no it's all one thing <laughs> and it almost feels like i never pivoted mm. the, the roots of how i work have just kind of gotten deeper in a way so you know i started out in education teaching children and thinking and seeing, wow, you know, how children are coming to me at age five and six actually depends on their experience before they get to the classroom, depends on early childhood. It depends on how they were born. It depends on maternal health. And then I got, you know, really deeply in love with birth work and supporting families through the birth portal. And then was like, wow, actually, we need to go back even farther, right? It's like before we get pregnant, right? It's preconception. And and I still do that work. I hold work for um, female health um, and sovereignty, uh, mostly online and some in-person midwifery, midwifery work. And then it was like, well, what's the root really of all of this? And, you know, the threads of community relationship, stability in um healthy food, right, in the the nervous system regulation that happens when we know that our we're um, in relationship with land, like our feet are on the earth and our sense of home that we have place um, and our skills and our community and our sense of ritual. And at that time, I just happened to be uh, getting to be with uh farmers through Mudbone Grown and bringing my first grade students to the farm when I was teaching at Cairo's PDX 
and it all kind of evolved from there of like actually this really feels like the core mm -hmm. of everything and all the other pieces the education the birth work um the policy work actually stems from and grows out of that and it reminds me of right the malcolm x quote that all revolution is based on land like our relationship with land and the earth is um is the starting place and the foundation for what communities need to thrive. Mm -hmm. to this week's guests, Sophie Peel and Kittestache, and thank you for joining me. I hope you'll join me again next week. Until then, bye!